0: In this episode of Smart Humans, we talk with Stuart Cole, the co CEO of the Riverside Company, which is a global private equity shop which has invested into nearly 900 organizations and manages over $15 billion of AUM. We talk with Stuart about how he has shifted from a very conservative personal portfolio to now including various alts, including IP rights like music royalties. He talks to us about how the Riverside Company targets their organizations, and then provides additional help with building enterprise value. He shares with us his connection to cancer and then his passion for cancer research. And finally, he gives us a unique idea as what we, the listeners, should be investing into for a next three-year time horizon. Welcome to Smart Humans with Slava Rubin,
1: presented by Vincent. In this alt-investing podcast... Slava talks to amazing minds about their investment journey and finds out what it takes to make it in the markets. And now,
0: here's your host and smart human, Slava Rubin. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Smart Humans. I'm very excited for today's guest. He has a long history of becoming one of the best private equity investors in the world with over $15 billion of AUM under management. Very excited to introduce Stuart Cole co-CEO of the Riverside Company, and also a friend to join for the show. Hi, Stuart. Hey, Salva. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. So we always like to start with the same question, which is, how did you even get into what you do? How did you get into alternative investments? And you know, show us the path of how you got here. Of course. And I'll
1: start by uh, warning your listeners not to try this at home. It worked well for me decades ago. I don't think it would today. I was doing something completely different out of uh, Oberlin College when when I graduated uh, for about 10 years, and uh, that uh, took us to the um, mid-80s. And I was reading a lot about these things called leverage buyouts, and I thought that would be really fun and exciting uh, to be a part of. Uh, Mind you, I had never taken a finance or accounting course, and I am not exaggerating here. I could not spell EBITDA. But that didn't stop me from from my dream. And through um, Oberlin Connections, I was very fortunate to get ultimately hired by an arm of Citicorp, which ultimately became Citicorp Venture Capital, and um, learned uh, the business and applied my trade there for
0: five years. And what were you studying at Oberlin since you said you didn't know know, finance or accounting or what EBITDA means? (laughs) I was an economics
1: uh, and uh, government major uh and i was very involved with the uh, cooperatives at oberlin the student housing and dining co-ops feed and or house about a quarter of the student body so it's a pretty big business and it's all student run and that was a lot more fun than my courses so ultimately i was president of the student co-op association and um i liked that so much that for the first 10 years of my career i worked professionally with cooperative businesses so Think about um, all kinds of co-ops, housing co-ops and agricultural co-ops, credit unions, worker co-ops. Um, and uh, it, was, it was a fun and exciting 10 years. But again, I was um, itching to do something different.
0: And this is what that led to. So, I mean, economics is not that far away from finance. Were you doing something before you got into leverage buyouts? Um, no, that, uh, it, economics was pretty far in those days. It was uh, macro,
1: mainly macroeconomics. And um, a little bit of micro, but but again, no finance, no accounting, uh, and in, in those days it was uh, very theoretical, uh, not not uh, highly applied. Uh, so um, I had held a variety of jobs through uh, high school and college, but all those were just really to, to pay the bills, if you will. Um, so I've I've really only had the two careers. I've had the ten years working with cooperative businesses, and now the thirty-five years of doing. Uh, what I'll describe as alternative investing, but I'm sure by the by the end of the podcast we'll have narrowed that quite a bit from the range of alternative investing that you
0: apply. And just for the audience's understanding of what you do, can you give us like perspective on you know what is your business today? What is the core thing that you're doing? What's the size of it? The people, the just you know for people that don't know. Sure. As I
1: mentioned, Riverside Company's been around now for uh, 34 years. During that time, we've emerged as a leader uh, among the private capital firms that invest at the smaller end of the middle market. And we define that as companies that have enterprise values of less than $400 million. You can translate that into sales, generally, again, under $400 million or EBITDA, generally under about $30 million. but in many cases, less or even much less than that. We have a micro cap fund that focuses on companies with less than 10 million of EBITDA. We have a product which is designed for young B2B SaaS software businesses um, that will invest in companies that have as little as three to five million of ARR. So we're, we're uh, doing dinky deals, but we do a lot of them. So in our history, we've done, we've invested in uh, well over 800, almost 900 companies. And um, last year alone, We invested in 125 companies now. That was a a banner year for us. And the number I'm quoting includes both platforms, which is a new company uh, that we established as our platform holding in that industry, and then add-ons to that platform. And it's very typical for us to do three or four or five add-ons and not unusual for us to do five to 10 add-ons to a platform. Just to finish answering your prior question in terms of scale, uh, we have um, 350 employees spread out uh, across 15 offices uh, on, across four continents. We are investing across North America, Western Europe, and Australia. But we also have uh, a small team in uh, China to help with sourcing and um, and operations there.
0: So, just to repeat, so you, just even in 2021, you invested in 125 companies that are, you know, worth up to about $400 million of enterprise value.
1: Right. But if you include those add-ons, many of those are, are tiny companies. To decompose a little further, the 125 would be 50 new platform investments, which tend to be the larger ones, up to $400 million. But many of them are $50 million, $100 million, uh, again, enterprise value. Uh, and then the add-ons, which can be literally any size. Some are, are $7 million,
0: but that's unusual. So there's so many questions I want to ask about your actual business of what you do today. But first, we want to get to know you a little bit more. So beyond your sweet spot of these buyouts and the private equity deals, you know, what are you doing with your own investments? Meaning not Riverside, the company. What do you like to invest into? You know, there's real estate, there's art, there's crypto, there's NFTs, there's sports cards. What do you like to lean into? What do you shy away from? How do you think about diversifying your your investments?
1: Yeah, I'm uh, now going to probably start to disappoint you and your your listeners because I'm very conservative in my own personal investing. And let me just give a little bit of, of quick history there. Uh, once upon a time, I had more than all of my money invested in the Riverside and its deals, which is uncomfortable but was um, a blessing uh, for me personally. Over time, I started uh, to have some assets outside of Riverside, and I said to myself, "I've got." So much exposure uh, to private equity through Riverside that I really ought to be extremely conservative with what's outside of Riverside. So I invested mostly in municipal bonds. Now, in those days, you could actually get a return investing in municipal bonds. We may be heading back for those days. And in fact, it ended up being good returns. Um, and it was a blessing, again, because during the global financial crisis, I, I had um, worried a lot about how Riverside investments would do. But I didn't have to worry about how my personal investments would do. Post the global financial crisis, I realized that what I was doing, which was kind of a barbell, you know, most of my money in leveraged bets, uh, private and a little bit of my money in munis was not a sustainable form of investing. So uh, after that time, I uh, kept increasing my exposure to the public equity markets uh, with the money outside of Riverside. And um, that, you know, I, I evolved uh, to a 60-40 and then ultimately
0: to a, closer to a 90-10 uh, type portfolio. But starting... Sorry, when you, when, you, when you say 60-40, you're referring to the public market 60 and 40 like municipal bonds or other stuff? Exactly. For, for 40 fixed income, which for me
1: was overwhelming, uni- overwhelmingly municipal bonds. Keep, keep in mind, this is for the small portion that's not already in, in Riverside.
0: Of course, you're concentrated in Riverside. We know how that is. Lots of the guests, you know, have the thing that they're very good at. And that's where a lot of their uh, investment is. So now, though, you've shifted more towards 90% public equities and 10% into these. That, that, was, a, that was a shift I made uh,
1: gradually, you know, f- let's say I was 60, 40 after the global financial crisis, kind of you can think of it as a slope, but eventually getting down to about 90, 10 uh, for that money. But along the way, I started to think about alternatives, and you uh, gave a great list of some of how many choices there are. Again, I'm not that adventurous. So for me, the things that um, I've done is I, I've added a real estate sleeve. I access that through a limited number of people that I know personally that I think highly of who have had spent their career in real estate. I think of them as people who would I would be happy to have as colleagues and partners of mine at Riverside if they were doing private equity they have chosen to do real estate but they do it with the same um ethical approach the same thoughtful approach uh, the same analytical approach that we would use and therefore I'm very happy to to uh, have them investing that money so real estate is is a portion today along the way I um have Gotten quite involved with healthcare in a variety of ways, most importantly, as a member of the board of uh, directors of the Cleveland Clinic. And um, I've seen the incredible research that is going on, uh, which I would define as both the passion of the investigators, the doctor scientists, um, as well as the, the results of that. And we're all living through this period of the, that I refer to as the, the miracle of the molecule. Um, it, sometimes it's it's a little too miraculous, but you can take a pill for, for almost anything today. It's, it's remarkable. So I uh, said to myself, I, I would like to have some exposure to that, but I um, basically washed out of Organic Chemistry 101. Uh, there's a reason I'm, I'm not a doctor today, uh, and um, I, I have no way to really evaluate these. So in that case, I uh, work through a firm that gives me a exposure to young and so i could go in the public equity markets and just buy there's lots of ways to, to invest in that through the public equities but i'm you know i'm not looking to get a an index type return here i'm looking to either make a lot of money or lose my money and i'm investing an amount of I, that i could lose so i uh, but i don't want to do it in one company so i i've invested it I'm, I'm on my way to about a dozen of these investing in young biopharma companies and um it's too early to say how that's going to work out for me.
0: That was actually going to be a question, which is you say you've invested into about a dozen. Are you doing those direct on your own or are you going through a fund to do those? Or I, I, I do them
1: direct, but they're, they're brought to me by a firm that um, does this for a living and, and takes a promote, if you will. So you can effectively think of it as if it were a fund. But I, I retain discretion investment by investment.
0: Promote, meaning they take like a percentage of the investment that you might make. They take a fee for the money they bring into the company. Got it. And then you were going to say another asset that you're investing in as well, or I cut you off there. Sorry.
1: Yes. Yeah. So, so uh, no, I cut you off. Um, so, uh, so then I do also, you know, kind of watch the market for things that I think are, uh, less correlated to what I do for a living Riverside and, um, with that in mind, I've, uh, for example, invested in a fund uh, called Primary Wave, which is uh, in the music royalty space. That sounds so interesting, tell me more. Yeah, so uh, this is actually starting to get a lot of press attention now, but if you were a, um, uh, a musical artist, maybe you are, I know you're a man of many talents, or are outstanding on the grill, for example, maybe you're, maybe you're an outstanding musician too, um, now if you were,
0: i don't think i ever got that talent
1: <laughs> if you were um and, and and let's just say like bruce springsteen one of my favorites you would have a body of work uh, over decades um that uh pays royalties to you over time um a nice formula except there's two problems one is you're you're not going to live forever although i think the boss might um uh, so the royalty thing is not money you're going to get, it's money your estate's going to get. And the second is royalties are ordinary income. But if you capitalize all of that and you sell it as a catalog, you get the money today and it's capital gains. So um a wide, you know, many artists have been selling their work. Um, the other reason to do it is that artists are good at many things. But maximizing the value of an asset like this is may not be one of them. Um, so the firms that buy these, the rights are expert at how do you, for example, sell this music to, um, score a movie? So there's more royalties coming from that. How do you even enforce all the royalty collection? Um, how do you come up with related products around the brand? So they're, they're, they're much more adept. And they can maximize the value. So I think there's a a number of, of very compelling reasons why artists are and should consider selling and why the buyers of these assets um, can generate a, an above expected return, above risk adjusted return over time. And, uh, you know, is it correlated to what I do at Riverside? You know, everything is correlated. Ultimately, <laughs> the world ends. None of our revenue streams are going to, none of our discounted cash flows are going to pay out. But um, but in, you know, fortunately, the world ends far less often than we think it's going to. And um, I do believe a, a, ro- a stream of royalties like this is a little different uh, from the other things I'm invested in, a little less correlated.
0: Absolutely. And the way you're getting exposure there is through a fund, not doing individual investments into catalogs. That's right. Cause I have no
1: ability to pick the winners and I would have no ability to maximize afterwards. So, so that's an interesting question you asked because I, I'm obviously paying fees and carry. Um, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm not morally opposed to fees or and carry. In fact, I'm a, I'm a big believer in fees and carry. Uh, Riverside collects them obviously and, and we need those to pay for our 350 people and to do a great job for our investors. But. But I, I have the ability to invest as much as I want in Riverside not paying fees and carries. So the decision to invest in in a real estate project that might be promoted or a music royalty fund that has a promote is is a, a decision I have to make that it's 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 worth it to me to pay that to achieve the diversification. And diversification is something we can chat about this uh today if you're interested in, in my views on it. Um I'm a believer. To a point, I have observed over the decades that some of my diversification has been diversification. Um, I said to myself, "This is great. I'm investing in something different from Riverside, so I can sleep better at night." But the return was the the amount I gave up in return made
0: that not a wise choice. Yeah, I mean, it seems like you really didn't start diversifying for a while because you were very concentrated in the earlier days, right? So it's I really didn't have a choice. Right. You know, pri- private equity
1: um is a is a get rich slowly scheme we don't we don't make money overnight we make money over time and it took you know a decade or more uh really much more before it could start to say there's there's some money that doesn't have to be all in in on riverside i i don't want to lose the thought you you then listed many other things that you know art and nfts and on and on there's there, the plethora of alternatives is remarkable um and i'm not participating in most of those not because i don't think there's good opportunities there i just haven't um had the time to really think through and focus and find the right ways um again for me it it heavily comes down to the who right yep and uh, and and i and I, and i i need to do a lot of who diligence um before i do the due diligence
0: i like that back to the music rights is that really considered more of a yield play more of a Kind of like let's call it like dividends almost? So great question. And the answer to that would be yes,
1: um, to a degree. But I think what's gonna happen is that the, the firms that are leaders in this space and 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 primary wave where I, I where I'm investing is one of them, I think will as they build up a, a big diversified library, that they they will be able to capitalize, if you will, that royalty stream again, whether it's a public offering or uh, bringing in pro- uh, private investment, and that folks that are investors will be- will share in the benefit of that. I think this will emerge as a. it's not going to be the biggest asset class just because, just like art, it's, you know, can't go back and and paint more Monets uh, right now to, to fill the pipeline, for, even though there's plenty of demand. Um, but but there is a lot of intellectual property out there, um, you know, the Beatles uh, you know, think about the the magnitude of these. So I so I think it's going to emerge as a as a meaningful asset class, which ha- potent- creates the potential for that to become some capital gains. But, yes, along the way, it's mostly a, a play for uh, for distributions.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, IP rights, I totally didn't expect to have this conversation here. So that's amazing that you brought it up. Um, You know, you said you're not that into alternatives that you might not be as interesting to the audience. But, you know, in the last few minutes, you said you got into real estate, you're doing health tech and other types of investments that it's kind of like binary big win or a loss, which is the exact opposite of kind of the slow and steady IP rights. So you really have an interesting portfolio that you're trying to put together. You know, I might. I might be a Buick, not an Oldsmobile.
1: Nice, but I drive a Tesla. But but that that, that put that aside. I did this one other thing, which is related to the healthcare. In addition to the miracle of the molecule, I am investing in some uh, still relatively early stage uh, cancer companies. Uh, obviously, sometimes it, it's a drug, but often it's something else, uh, and um, that just comes because. Uh, Fighting cancer is kind of a passion of mine. It's um, we've all been touched by cancer, although I hate that euphemism. Nobody gets touched by cancer; you get clobbered by cancer. We all basically live in fear of a cancer diagnosis, and for us, for our loved ones. And um, I like the opportunity to uh, fight back. Um, And uh, some of these young companies are, I think, going to have real breakthroughs, game changers, um, and. I also, in my um, philanthropy, I also uh, have a real interest in, in um, things that would uh, reduce, if not eliminate, cancer.
0: Yeah, um, I share your thought about cancer. Actually, my dad died of cancer when I was a kid. I'm sorry. How old were you? Uh, I was 15, uh, multi- multiple myeloma. I mean, great progress has been made in the last, you know, approximately 30 years, and that's based on, you know, a lot of people doing fundraisers and research and all that. And I know that you've been pushing that forward. I think it's called VeloSano. That's right. So I think you've raised something like $30 million for fundraisers for cancer research and grants. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? And what was the original impetus to even start that? Sure. The, I'll, I'll tell you about it first. Um, Velo and Sano. Velo is,
1: is a word well known to cyclists. And I'm a pretty avid, though slow, recreational cyclist. Uh, and, um, it's speedy is, it's Latin word f- for speedy and, and sano is for health or cure. So, uh, means speedy cure, uh, and, um, it uses a pretty well-established model, uh, of a, of a bicycle event as our core, although we've expanded well beyond just the, the bicycle event. Um, and the way the bicycle event works is that riders sign up to ride distances of anywhere from six to 200 miles, and um, people agree to pay them, sometimes by the mile they ride, sometimes just a fixed amount. Um, But it creates a very capillary like fundraising system where lots of small gifts get aggregated to raise larger sums. Um, Because you're getting a very interesting group of of people uh, very passionately involved, business sponsors logically want to join in and have their names associated with it. So typically, a hundred percent of the cost of the event is underwritten by the corporate sponsors plus fees that riders pay to ride. Um, and it is a the bicycle ride is fantastic, so you're happy to pay a fee to have this great experience. And that means that a hundred percent of the those small contributions you raise end up being um, available. In the case of El Osano, uh we've raised uh, over thirty million. This is our ninth year. We just held the ride this past weekend. So remains to be seen how much we'll raise this year. But last year we raised over $5 million and I'm hopeful we'll raise a similar amount or more this year. Um, and what's really magical about that money is uh, it is all uh, immediately uh, deployed for cancer research. So we're not building buildings or endowing chairs. By the way, those are both also very worthy things to do that are part of the fight. But, you know, We want the next 15-year-old Slava, you know, not to have his father die, and we don't want to build a building that does research that, 10 years from now, finds something. We want we want to deploy that money next Tuesday and see what we can find. So the money gets immediately uh, distributed. We have a peer review scientific council that makes the those decisions, Um, and it's invested uh, in a very um, venture capital-like way. In other words. Uh, if, a, if a doctor or a scientist has an idea that they want to prove out, we're willing to be the early money that lets them try to prove it out. If it's successful, then they can go to other sources and, most importantly, NIH to get much larger grants. But NIH, the, the paperwork you submit to NIH to get a grant looks, looks about like that. And you need to. NIH being like a, a national. i I'm sorry, National Institute of Health, the government grants. And they're not in the business of funding, you know, things that are unlikely to work. They want to see some evidence first. So we're happy to be the early money um, and our $30 million that we've already raised and deployed, plus the money we'll raise this year, which is yet obviously all come in and be deployed, has already leveraged $22 million of government funding. So we're very excited about the progress that, that, we, that we can make. That's awesome in terms of how I got involved, I am an avid cyclist. A friend of mine uh, had um, lost her mom to an ovarian cancer. She is uh, named for her aunt who died before she was born. Her earliest memories are going door to door collecting money for the American Cancer Research she, she was kind of cancer was her touched her whole life. And she herself had had the BRCA1 uh, genetic predisposition and had to go through everything you go through. Uh, and, and later in life now as a survivor of cancer. So cancer has, quote unquote, touched every part of her life. She's also a cyclist and she uh, rode in something called the Pan Mass Challenge 26 years ago and called me up and said, you've got to do this with me next year. So I did. And we had, I was hooked. I did that for 16 years. And then uh nine years ago, said I would love to do the same thing, but I instead of having to drive to Boston to do it, which is where the Pan Mass Challenge is held. I would love to do it in Cleveland, where I live. And I joined the board of the Cleveland Clinic. And I was very pleased to find out there were some folks there that were familiar with this model and were willing to be a part of the launch of it. So today, it's uh, it's effectively a, uh, an arm of the Cleveland Clinic. And we that, that provides us a lot of benefits to, of, of resources and scale and is also where the money goes for research.
0: That's amazing. I love all that. Keep up the good work. Um, and and you know, along
1: the way, we all have, have our cancer stories. And for me, many friends, many families, some survivors, some not. And most importantly, a couple of years ago, my brother, who um, was not young, but by my standards, was very young and vital, and glioblastoma, a particularly um, just a tragic, horrible, terrible diagnosis and form of the disease. Uh, took his life. And um, he's, I had lost two friends to glioblastoma before that.
0: Um, I'm sorry to hear that I should get you not that this will help. But this is my little way of as you say, fighting back, I make uh, cancer sucks, socks. So it's socks that say cancer sucks. I love it. So I'm gonna have to uh, get you some of those, please. Um, so the last question in this chapter is, you know, before the financial crisis, you pretty much were zero in alternatives, and now you've definitely you know, moved into more alternatives. You said you've converged toward 90-10 public equities, bonds, or fixed income. What percentage, if you just had to have an aggregate percentage for all these other alternative things, has e- how much of that has eaten into the 100%? Is it 1%, 20%? If you just had one number. Yeah, so uh, it's, it's uh, approaching uh, another
1: 10%. So if you think about it, then uh, public equities traditional would be 80%. These other alternatives are 10%, and uh, debt, uh, fixed income, if you will, is 10%. But but it's it it is growing faster, um, and will I believe, depending on how the public equity markets perform, will become a higher and higher percentage um, because I look the reason not to do alternatives is that they're higher risk and they're illiquid in some cases um, some are actually quite liquid but most of what I'm doing you know once I invest in these little companies it's either the company's going to succeed or you're going to lose your money there's not a lot you can do along the way to, to change that so so that would argue don't put in money that you can't afford to lose um, or that you're going to need but if you've reached a point in terms of wealth creation that you, you have the money you need to live, um, and if you lost it, your lifestyle would not dramatically change, then you have to ask yourself what's going to, what's going to perform better, these uh, a bag of these alternatives uh, or simply more in public equities, which is the, the null case, the, the, the default case, if you will, for me. And uh, while public equities have been surprisingly rewarding uh, for most of the last decade plus, and for most of the history of the financial markets in the US, uh, you know obviously we're in we're in a challenging period right now, but we've had lot lots of challenging periods before in public equities. while it's perfor- they performed very well, the facts will show that the premium you get paid for taking more risk and illiquidity, allows for ultimately outperformance from those assets if if you're patient. <clears throat> now, you're taking more manager risk. You're I might you know, I might invest in the wrong real estate, I might invest in the wrong biopharma or the wrong medical device. Uh, I might be wrong in my guess on royalties, but it's a, it, it is a mixed bag and I am betting that overall the premium I will get paid for the risk I'm taking and the illiquidity I'm suffering will lead to outperformance um, and I will therefore have generated more return than it would have if I simply the easy case would just be, you know, even in the public equity markets.
0: Yeah, that's a great takeaway for the audience. Just that kind of, you know, you're rationally doing that math and trying to understand what the returns could be for the risk. And, you know, you think it's a good trade off. Um, you you segued us here very nicely towards today's market. Uh, And today is an interesting market, given it's the day after yesterday. (laughs) And um, now when this show uh, goes live, you know, just to put into context, um, we just found out that the CPI number was hotter than expected. And that had a significant impact on the markets, you know, a lot of risk off kind of uh, actions. So, you know, you're in the middle of all of this. You have to make decisions and understand the macro, the micro, understand individual companies. So I'm just going to give you kind of the the mic to like, what's your point of view? Where are we today? Where are we headed? What do you think about inflation? What do you think about the stock market? What do you think about the economy? What do you think of where things are at with the globe? So take it wherever you'd like.
1: Yeah, so happy to answer the question, but with a caveat that I I know won't surprise you, which is that even though I studied macroeconomics 100 years ago in college, um, I, I, I do not view myself as a macro investor. Um, uh, in other words, I, I i I never make an investment on the riverside side or even on the personal investing sleeve side, because i my macro view is x. I make that investment because i let, let me personalize it with Riverside because I believe this company that we are looking where we're talking with the owner, we have a um, a very credible idea for how we're going to double or triple the size of the company. And professionalize the company such that it's going to be worth more than we paid, hopefully two or three or five times more um, over a reasonable period of time. We typically think about five years. Uh, Macro is inherently in that because we have to make some decisions about headwinds versus tailwinds. And as a cyclist, I really understand the impact of headwinds and tailwinds. A, A slight headwind. Makes a long 100 mile ride like I did on Saturday a lot harder, and a slight tailwind makes it a lot easier. And and we want to always be investing with a tailwind if we can. But the fundamental underwriting is a micro underwriting. All right, that's the caveat. My views on the macro: um, public equity markets will 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 go up and down. I feel fairly confident of that. (laughs) Um, But but over time they will they will go up. um, I'm still I'm still positive on them. I think we've been spoiled by the returns over the last two to four decades because we've been in this pervasively um, low inflation, low interest rate period. Um, and we've been in a period which has been from a geopolitical perspective, relatively good. Now, people are dying. Um, people are starving. People are un- undereducated. People don't have social justice and opportunity. Uh, I don't want anybody to think I, I think the world is perfect. The world is, the world is deeply imperfect. And I believe over the thousands of years, it's always been imperfect and hopefully is on a path to more perfection. But, it, but when, when you step back, it's, it's um, I, I, I believe we've had a very good period. You could argue that what's happening now, Ukraine, China, which is a concern to me, um, portrays a darker geopolitical period. You could argue, I would argue, that the internal divisions in our own country pose um, an existential type threat different than what we've experienced in the past, um, at least going back to the Civil War. But but I'm still fundamentally a believer that, you know, if you, if you buy and hold public equities, you're going to have a positive return over time, but probably less than the last few decades would pre- predict and with maybe pr- more volatility than we've uh, experienced historically. Um, if you're asking for more of a near-term uh, prediction, um, I think the fed's hand is being forced to have uh, higher interest rates and, and maybe much higher interest rates for a period of time. Uh, I, I believe I'm accurate in saying that Paul Volcker, who I kind of grew up under and I view as a bit of a hero, ultimately had to take interest rates higher than inflation to, to, to tame inflation. I believe there was one Saturday night he raised interest rates by 200 basis points and kind of over the weekend. <laughs> um, I'm not predicting we'll do something like that again, but but I do, you know, I, I do believe that Jerome Powell is a student of history. I do think he wants to be perceived more like a, a Paul Volcker, um, notwithstanding the the difference in height. And um, I think uh, I think he's going to take. I think the Fed is going to take a very activist approach to inflation, and that's going to have comp, uh, that's going to have um, consequences for the economy do i do I predict uh, a deep recession I don't um, unemployment is simply too low um, put it the other way the number of unfilled jobs is too high uh, and um, and 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 while again there's tremendous pain and suffering tremendous inequality there is also tremendous wealth in America today and the worst case of cabin fever I've ever seen people are eager to get out and spend and enjoy we all went through a very challenging couple of years with the pandemic and, and are still going through it in some ways. So I, I just don't see the ingredients that would lead to a very deep recession. Um, recessions are a normal part of the business cycle that they're they're required to set up the next period of growth. Um, and um, the market could go down quite a bit, because we're seeing the market is reacting in extreme ways, um, not just being down Uh, 1200 points yesterday, but being up 5% the week before. Uh, it's, it's very, there's a lot of, of the sentiment in the market. There's a lot of, um, program trading that goes on in the market to exaggerate. But, but putting the market aside, do I think we're going to go through like a, like a deep recession? I, I, I've worked, my investment career included the first Gulf War recession in 91, the second Gulf War in, in 2001, not to mention uh, dot com uh, bubble bursting, of course, two thousand and eight nine, which we thought was lights out when it when it happened, it was terrible, the global financial crisis, and a very difficult recovery um, i I'm not predicting something you know things of that depth
0: so um just to dig into that for a second, so let's say it doesn't go to the depth of the financial crisis of two thousand and eight, but if uh, interest rates um stay higher. Have to go even higher because the Fed is pushed to go higher because you know you said inflation might stay you know up for a little while so let's just predict for a second that it stays above six for another year and then you said Volcker, you know on a Saturday you know took it up two points because he had to take it over inflation right so let's just predict the same thing has to happen so are we going to get to Fed rates that lead you know to over six like some crazy numbers and in that sort of situation mortgage rates just being impossible real estate having an impact. I mean there is the potential for maybe not the financial crisis of 2008 or not the end of the world and lights out but maybe that is uh you know a fairly deep recession what do you think It's possible
1: um you know my view would be more 4 to 5% not not north of 6 but but it's possible uh, look how ha- the housing market uh has cooled considerably already um it, really interesting to see how sensitive really it is to interest rates and sentiment and and it's 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 cooled a lot already you could argue that the fed should kind of view that as mission accomplished there uh, already so i don't think that alone is going to push them the the big to me the big thing that happened in in uh, the global financial crisis were, were the banks failures of the banks the challenges the banks had banks are in very bank balance sheets are in very good condition today um, you could worry about the underlying loans but i think banks have been um pretty sober about lending even during this period of low interest rates and and pretty good economy um the the regulatory environment for banks is has been uh, quite strict um so i don't i don't i'm not predicting that uh we're going to have a bank led crash uh housing is going to meaning not as much like bad debt so so yeah all what what you know what happened in 2008 9 is you know, if, if you think about the the big the big headlines with, you know, Bear Stearns and all all the issues that rippled through um, in the banking sector um, and then all the bad loans and then banks not making loans because of their balance sheets. I just don't see that that happening uh, this time around. Look, there's a lot of a lot of um, investment that made sense when when interest rates are two or three percent. That won't make sense if they're even five percent. Um, and that's okay. That you know those projects won't won't move forward uh, for a while uh, until and unless interest rates get lower. But I don't I don't see that as
0: being um, again this. Um, I could be wrong, but I don't see seeing a, a deep recession here. You mentioned a couple of times that the um, public markets might not see as good of a run for the next year or two, etc. Does that make you position anything differently, or is the simple answer, hey, I invest for the long run, so I see some ups, I see some downs, I close my eyes, and I just keep looking forward?
1: Well, keep, you know, keep, keep in mind that overwhelmingly, continuously for 35 years, I've had all of my money, more, more than all of my money, than all of my money, than most of my money in Riverside in private equity. I keep saying private equity. We do some uh, private credit. We do some, what we call flexible capital, which is between equity and debt. Um, but it's all private. It's all illiquid. Um, so, so that to me, you know, what's the best place to have your money in a period like this? Uh, obviously, I'm hopelessly biased and your listeners need to know that. But to me, the best place to have it is in a, a um, private company that is growing profitable and has pricing power that has proven its ability to increase prices faster than its costs and faster than inflation, faster than its wage rates uh, increase. And you and I have not talked about wages, but to me, that's the, the biggest risk right now in the equation is that after an extended period of of arguably wage increases that were too low, um, it's not, you know, for, for the average worker, it's not been a rewarding enough period we're, we're going to need to make up for that, and we are. I think you're seeing the leading edge of that. With um, you know, there was so much controversy about whether we should raise the minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour, and basically, or most companies need to pay more than fifteen thousand an hour just to get you know good sober employees to come to work. So um, it's uh, to me to me that that's the biggest risk. But but if you can if you have the privilege of investing in a company like that, that's a great. Place to have your money. That's and you know, and that's what firms like ours do. We look for those companies and we
0: support them. How do you suggest? You know, not everybody gets to run their own uh, PE uh, private equity organization. So, like the listeners, some are accredited, some are not. You know, some have significant wealth. How do you suggest they try to find that private company? Because it's obviously not a public company, right? It's not on the stock market. You know, the public companies, you could say the same thing. Go find a great public company. And for those who
1: have the time and ability to research and find them, they're out there. But but it's challenging because you've got to then figure out how is what's market sentiment. And, yeah, it's a great company, but it's fully valued or overvalued or it's a OK company, but it's undervalued. There's a lot of things to figure out. Um, You know, I, I'm I'm going to stop well short of giving um, investment advice, and also from a regulatory perspective, I want to be very, very careful here. But folks should work with their um, financial advisors, their uh, wealth managers. Um, Once upon a time, I would say that they weren't very helpful in this regard because they didn't understand alternative investing, and they mostly just warned people off of that. But I think today, investors uh, increasingly are, uh, expecting or even demanding their wealth managers to be, um, uh, knowledgeable, to be able to make, to give advice about how to invest in other, uh, other classes other investment classes. Um, and then of course the emergence of, of, uh, platforms and you're, you're the expert uh, here, um, that provide, uh, the average, quote unquote, average investor, however you want to define that, the ability to get exposure to some of these other asset classes is a is a dramatic innovation in our markets. I mean, these things that just literally didn't exist, you know, not just a decade ago, but last year or two years ago. I mean, there's a, there's a real blossoming right now, and at the heart of the blossoming, I think, is a, a recognition by investors of you know, some of them are, are, uh, are, you know, hot, very high net worth and qualified purchasers, but others are accredited and, and, and on, and on down and down, um, that a portion of their investments should be, um, in classes other than the historic ETF for, or fixed income that they might have been investing in. And, um, I, w- I would urge folks to, to become smart about that. And, to get the right advisors and to find the right platforms to do it. It's again, it, 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 the opportunity for uh, outperformance comes, you know, r- risk and return are, are opposite sides of the same coin. They're fellow travelers. Um, they, you can't get one without the other, but, but, but that doesn't mean every, in, every investment ends up with the same return. Some work splendidly and some fail miserably. And um, the right selections, there is the potential for meaningful outperformance with the right selections.
0: So, you know, that's a great segue into what you are actually doing at Riverside. You've invested into nearly 900 companies and a bunch of them you call add-ons. Can you give us perspective of how you target those you know, let's call it 200 platform companies, how do you identify them? And then what do you do once you, you know, invest? Are you fully investing into them 100%? Is it minority investments, majority investments? Can you give us perspective on that?
1: Sure, of course. So in terms of, of um, how we find them, we have an origination team of about 20 people around the world who get up in the morning and they brush their teeth, I, I hope. They, they have a cup of coffee, I think. And then they get on on the phone, on the computer, in in a car, in a plane, and they uh, talk to what we call intermediaries. And that there are thousands of intermediaries. It does include the business owners themselves, but they're much harder to find. But it also includes their lawyers, their accountants, their commercial and investment bankers and brokers. And um, we challenge them that anytime there's a company of the size or ilk that we might want to invest in being sold in the area that they cover, we'd like the privilege of considering it. And and last year alone, they found 5,000 of these opportunities. Um, Pretty quickly, you can whittle them down. About a third of them are worth spending time on. But that's how we find them. What we're looking for are companies in the um, specializations where we focus, in the size range we play in, in the geographies we're active in. And then most importantly, where we see that potential to double or triple the size of the business through a combination of um, of organic growth and uh, add-on investments. And when we find an opportunity like that, we we fall in love with it, we're all over it, um, and try to, uh, if it's a competitive situation, try to prevail prevail in the competition. If it's a non-competitive situation, try to uh, convince the owner that we would be a great partner, which gets to the second part of your question. Uh, Typically, we're buying somewhere between 60 and 90% of the business. 80% 80% is very common, with the rest being owned by some combination of the management team and the prior owner, who in many cases will continue to be uh, part of the management team, but in other cases won't by their choice. Um, that's the most common formula uh, for us in terms of, of our ownership. Um, so we are, um, in those cases, the controlling owner. Now I want to just take a quick pause. And as I mentioned before, we have a credit arm. This is separate. In this case, we're not equity investors. We're making a loan to a company. It's being acquired probably by a firm like Riverside, but not Riverside. It's in the same areas, geographies and specialties that we focus on. But in this case, we're, we're uh, just looking to um, be, be the lender to, to the, to that company and to the buyer of that company. And then we have this very interesting in-between Dequity debt equity product. Um, We call it flexible capital. When we get it right, it has equity-like returns with debt-like risk. Um, And that um, is something we are particularly uh, doing for B2B SaaS software companies. Um, So that's a different format because in that case, we're not the controlling owner. We're looking for, um, a founder, uh, owned business in most cases that is growing. It's consuming capital because it should be. It's losing money because it should be in, in the sense that it's spending, uh, all or more than all of its profits on growth, hiring more salespeople and increasing marketing expenses because it has such a positive CAC ratio and because it's adding so much value. And, um, we're the, we're happy to be a
0: provider of that growth capital. So is that kind of like a venture debt? Uh, it is. Where it's kind of like almost like a debt product with like an equity kicker? Yes. You can
1: think of it that way. And and it in, for, for a select group of those companies that perform exceptionally well, it can become then a, a pure form of growth equity, if you will, uh, later. But it starts out life very much the way you describe.
0: It. And how do you decide... Um, whether or not you're taking the 80% actual ownership or whether you're coming in as a lender. Is that based on the seller deciding where they want you to sit or is that some other decision?
1: Yeah, it always starts with the seller, but it is interesting how often we meet a company that says, you know, I I know it's time for me to do something and I'm not exactly sure what I want to do or what I should do. Um, Then we are happy to help them think through their alternatives because In today's world, um, you have a lot of alternatives. There are a lot more alternatives than business owners would have had even just 10 or 20 years ago. There's there's many forms
0: of capital today. This might seem like a very beginner's question, but I think it'll be helpful. Why does your industry exist? Said a different way, said a different way. Why can't the entrepreneur or the management team that is running the company be able to achieve the results that you believe that, you know, your influence or whatever word one wants to use can then get to, the two to three X return or maybe even more. Like why, you know, you're not obviously the only private equity shop. There's a lot of people that have done a lot of great work and a lot of great results. Why does that even exist? Can you kind of explain what the issues are in, in the market? Absolutely. Yeah. At the highest level, I would say it exists because. The public equity
1: markets work exceedingly well for a very small percentage of all the companies in the world. Um, and that when I say work well, they provide capital uh, for growth and they provide liquidity for owners. Um, that's a small number of companies. Then you've got the thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of other companies, which are, are the public markets don't work for. But they have the same needs. They need capital to grow. They need capital for liquidity. Owners um, eventually die, get ill, um, uh, God forbid. Uh, they have uh, changes in lifestyle, divorce, retirement, wanting to go to the beach. Um, so uh, the, I believe that the private capital markets have blossomed the way that they have, not just in the US, but in developed markets around the world, and to some degree, even emerging markets around the world, because we Provide this form of capital, and uh, the best players in this market, and I, I like to include Riverside among them, have realized that the optimizing solution is to provide not just financial capital but intellectual capital, and to pair the two. So when we go into a company, it's not just a matter that we say, "Okay, you, you know, you want some liquidity or you want some growth capital? Here it is." We also bring in our uh, expertise. And we help them to grow faster, to become more profitable, to fully appreciate the opportunities. Just looking at add-ons, which I have come up multiple times in our discussion because they're so important for value creation. Most private companies don't have 20 people brushing their teeth and drinking coffee, looking for the add-ons. They don't have the Expertise to negotiate structure, finance, and close those add-ons. And even if they did, they haven't integrated hundreds of add-ons, which is an art. So the odds that they're going to successfully do all of that one-off are relatively low. So are you provi- you're providing those almost like as a service? Totally got it. And and we're we're one hundred percent incentivized to do it because it makes our equity more valuable, and we're perfectly aligned because. They own
0: 20% and we own 80% of the value we create. And you have mentioned multiple times, you know, the verticals are the spaces that we play in. You also said geographies, but uh, outside of geographies, what are those verticals? What are the kind of the spaces that you're targeting?
1: Sure. Um, the most active one for us today is SaaS uh, and um, other related uh, technology companies, not not high-tech, um, more basic, but, but SaaS. We love the recurring revenue streams. Um, We have a a significant vertical that's close to that that we call tech-enabled business services. So think about um, all the ways to help companies to be more successful um, uh, where uh, technology, the incentive for them to outsource to us to help them is that we are doing it for hundreds or thousands of others and have automated the process, whereas they would have to do it manually or create the code themselves. That's a a very fast-growing area for us. Um, Once upon a time, we, like almost all other uh, private equity firms, focused on uh, manufacturing and distribution. And that's still about 20% of what we do, Um, but don't think about uh, smokestacks, don't think about capital-intensive cyclical businesses. Most of the companies that we own in that sphere, if you, if you dropped what they made on your foot, it wouldn't hurt. Uh, and mostly we don't make it. It's at the, the manufacturing is outsourced. But we're what we want is the we want to own the IP, the customer, the distribution. And that's um, our, our focus there. Uh, education training has been a very uh, rewarding vertical for us, especially online training that is not. Uh, Nice to have. It's, it's need to have. It's the training you need to get a job, to, to keep a job like CE, continuing education units, to get a raise or a promotion, to be regulatorily compliant. We love that type of business. Subscription model online. Uh, the marginal cost of the next customer approaches zero. Uh, so as you scale, they become a very profitable businesses. Again, recurring revenue because of subscription model. Franchisors. Has become a nice, smaller, but passionate vertical for us. Again, we love the recurring revenues uh, that come through the royalty stream from the franchisees.
0: You mentioned the kind of target of the 400 million, up to 400 million of enterprise value, the 30 million, up to 30 million of EBITDA. Is there like an average? If I was inside your meetings and said, what is exactly our average? You know, was there an average enterprise value for 2021? So our our average EBITDA is uh, for
1: a platform investment is below $10 million, uh, and that translates to an average uh, enterprise value of around $100 million, a little less. Uh, Add-ons much less than that. Add-ons average out EBITDA of uh, under $2 million, and the multiples are much lower there uh, when you buy an add-on. So the average enterprise value there would be sub $10 million.
0: Got it. And why is that your sweet spot? Why is it not smaller than that, and why is it not bigger than that? Why is that where you all focus?
1: Okay, so so now I need to introduce my um, better half, uh, a chap named Bela Sigethy. You introduced me as the co-CEO. It takes um, two of us at Riverside to own and run the firm and do what one normal human being would otherwise do. I know the title. Of this is um, smart humans and. We're humans, but we may not be that smart. Um, So uh, he and I are are, have been 50/50 business partners for 30 years. And um, the first uh, 10 years, we did small deals because we didn't have any money. And without money, it's easier to do a small deal than a big deal. But as we started to be able to raise bigger funds because our early deals were successful, um, we had the option to move up market, which is the very well-worn path in my industry. And in a series of discussions he and I had in the late 90s, um, culminating in in the year 2000, we said to ourselves, if we move up market, um, it it may be more rewarding for us, but we we doubt we're going to be able to provide better returns to our investors because we're going to be competing in more perfect markets with better players. By definition, the best players move up market, the less good players Stay and the bad players descend and eventually disappear. So why don't we stick around at that small end? Why don't we achieve scale at the small end? Why don't we use the scale to enable resources at the small end, and really build a sustainable competitive advantage? So that of the of the 34 years of Riverside, that's been our journey. The last 22 or so of those years, or a little more. Um, And it's played out as uh, more and more small deals, not bigger deals, spreading our wings to include flexible capital and credit, Australia, Europe, not just North America, spreading our wings. And then most importantly, better and better with incredible attention to process. Because if you're only going to do a few deals a year, process doesn't matter that much. But if you're going to do 125 deals, you better have like a great process and And we believe that process is actually not the enemy of creativity. We think it's the enabler of creativity. We think when you have a great process, you routinize that which can be routinized, you de-risk that which can be mitigated, and you free up creativity, if you will, where it can really make a transformative difference. So that, that's the model. That's the strategy. It's been very consistent now over those two plus decades. Um, and luck beats planning. We started small. We, we discovered small is beautiful because we didn't have a choice. And now we continue to believe small is beautiful.
0: Yeah. Just to repeat something that you said, that's so impressive is usually for an investor or an AUM manager, it's very easy to try to go after bigger deals to be able to uh, take in more AUM. But you knew that you were good at the small and you stuck to the small, which challenged you to grow small through scale, which means you have to do more deals, which is a very easy place to flop, right? Maybe you were good at five deals, but can you do 15? Everything gets worse because the systems don't work. But somehow, I'm not going to call it magic, but you magically were able to build it to this massive scale, $15 billion AUM, 125 deals in one year you know, with add-ons, et cetera. I know you mentioned process, but can you just give us one more sentence or two about like? What is that secret sauce that allows you to now do 125, and potentially you'll be able to do 200 without you know any loss of issues, um, which is very impressive because you have to add on more people. They have to be part of the system. They have to still stay quality. You have to get out after quality deals. So yeah, what's your answer to that? We've almost
1: answered it. It is the people, but but that's that's could will come across as glib. Look, Fabio, you have to institutionalize it. You have to create processes. You have to get people who buy into that. And very importantly, you have to push down um, authority and responsibility. So while there are two of us who quote unquote own and run the firm, the reality is the investment activities all occur in our eight product areas where those fund managers um, really are presidents of their own businesses. Bela, my partner and I are on the investment committee. We, we, um, provide advice and guidance. We have a series of formal processes where we can weigh in on the key decisions. We have uh, a lot of informal meddling that goes on to, but the reality is they are, they are running their businesses because if we tried to do all of this with us, you know, sitting in our ivory tower, it, it, w- it wouldn't work. Um, so we built we built a, it. And then because each of us cut our teeth at Citicorp, um, we saw both the best and worst of kind of big bureaucracies. Um, but at their best, they they institutionalize what needs to be done in in a proper fashion. And um, uh, we're. Uh, big believers in in uh, compliance and process and. We've got a team of people that buy into that uh, and um, want recognize that the success, ultimately the success of the enterprise requires us to be um, really disciplined in how we go about this business.
0: That's awesome. We're coming towards the end of the discussion. So I'm just going to ask you a couple more questions, which is um, you being you, you know, we want to be more like your listeners, we want to be as smart as you and as accomplished as you. So what is it that you're listening to? What is it that you're watching? What is it that you're doing that's helping you to be informed or helping you be steward?
1: Yeah. Again, I'm a little old fashioned, so I actually read newspapers, uh, not not the paper version, but the the digital version. Uh, my day is 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 not right until I've read the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Plain Dealer. That's the Cleveland newspaper where I'm very involved. Um. Uh. That's not sufficient, but it's necessary for me because it does frame the big issues. Then there's a uh, private equity has emerged as a true asset class, a, a, an industry. So, like all industry, it has its industry rags and the things that are that I that you must read.
0: Uh, I'm, I'm, Is there one or two that you can mention that you like reading?
1: Sure, uh, sure. Uh, so, uh, PitchBook PEI. Um, there, there's, there's, uh, a half a dozen or more now that I, that I would, the deal, uh, that I would cite as being kind of must reads if you're, if you're in uh, private equity, private capital. Um, so that th- there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, reading, uh, involved for, uh, for me, um, those, that I would view those as being my primary source of, um, of news.
0: Gotcha and then um i think i read that you're really into jazz um is um there's a a myth about that
1: Uh, okay i have no musical ability um let me start there uh and let me just say that um i i'm i appreciate music in the sense of as a consumer but not not like a crazy avid consumer um when i was uh on the board of Oberlin College, uh, and I'm still emeritus, but not active on the board. When I was active on the board, the the number one priority for the college at the time was to build a new building uh, to house its uh, outstanding jazz program, which is part of the outstanding Oberlin Conservatory of Music. So even though I'm tone deaf and even though I have no real knowledge uh, of music, I was very happy to promote that uh, to, to be the, the lead donor, if you will to promote that project because it was uh, important to the college. Along the way it was a lot of fun. We met a lot of interesting people and we built I think a, an outstanding uh, facility which is uh, serving the, the students exceedingly well um, but it's not it's not because I'm uh, some I have any special knowledge or ability
0: or, or even a, a passion if you will. Sounds good. So let's, um, segue to the last question then, which is, uh, if I put you on the spot today and we had you back, you know, in a couple of few years, and I asked you, what is one specific investment that you would recommend? And I know you're Mm going to say mm -hmm. no financial advice, yada, 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 but what would be one thing that you would recommend to invest into, um, that three years from now will, you know, have, (laughs) um,
1: so I, I am, I, I, look, I can't stop eating my own cooking. So I am passionate about the smaller end of the middle market, private equity investing. Um, there's lots of good firms uh, in the market today that, that we compete against all the time. So there's, there's multiple choices people can make in that regard. Again, the key is to find the right advisor to help you find the right manager. And then I think private credit is fascinating. So, so we talked about municipal bonds being the way I was expressing my desire to be in fixed income, uh, because I wanted something very low risk. Uh, and, um, the problem is it's a remarkably low return. It's remarkably unrewarding. So, um, and, and that's true. I think that's true in general of the uh, widely available, uh, debt options, but private credit is are our, the loans that when we but when we buy a company the loans that we sign up to repay from a private lender and those can have a a low to mid teens return um default rates through the cycles not i'm not making you know this is not me this is independent research done by uh, very credible sources uh show default rates of like one percent through the cycle so you and and by the way, these loans are um, typically made at some spread to LIBOR or SOFR. They're a variable rate loan, so if inflation is, God forbid, you know, eight percent, the the interest rates go up accordingly. So to me, that's a for for people that are that don't want all the illiquidity and risk of private equity, but want some of that excess return. Um, I, I think I think it's an incredible alternative to fixed traditional fixed income it won't it won't you won't make three times your money. It's not designed to make three times your money but if, if you made twelve or thirteen or fifteen re- percent current return uh, including credit losses and everything, I think you'd be thrilled
0: i love I love that answer just the diversity of that answer is so unique on this show, so thank you so much for all your time, Stuart, this has been great. Just as a quick summary, you started, you know, in a macro world, uh, macroeconomics, and here you are in the middle of finance. Um, you started super conservative, just in municipal bonds. And over time, you now have a 10% sleeve in alts, you know, things like even um, music rights and obviously real estate and more. My favorite line that you said in this whole show was who diligence before the due diligence. That I will remember forever. You know, you told us about where music rights and IP rights are headed, the Velosano work that you're doing, the Speedy Cure and all the contextualization. We really appreciate you sharing the stories there. Um, you know, it's the best place to put money in you just find a private company that's doing well. You make it sound so easy, but obviously you've done it for so many years. Risk and return, they travel together. We all should understand that. And the way you've scaled this organization is really through process. It's an enabler of creativity. You said that yourself believe in the people and push down authority. I think that's amazing. And thank you for giving us your idea about private credit. We haven't heard that one yet. And getting 10 to 15% return with 1% risk or whatever is pretty amazing. So it's been a great conversation. We covered a lot. It went longer than expected. And thank you.
1: Thank you, Slav. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it.
0: And that was an outstanding summary.
1: And you almost, almost, almost made me look like a smart human. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Smart Humans with Slava Rubin is a podcast brought to you by the team at Vincent. Any data, text, or other content in this podcast is provided as general market information and not as investment advice. Past performance is not necessarily an indicator of future results. For more information on alternative investing, check out Vincent at www.withvincent.com.